I was going to remark on that word ornery because uh, growing up, my, child, my children, my parents used that about me a lot, and so I was glad to see it was in a Christmas song. Um, it simply means someone who's sort of rebellious and you know does things just to annoy other people. Um, and I grew up with uh, two other brothers. There were three of us, and I think we made it our, our study, finding ways to irritate our mother. I don't suggest that. That's not a good thing. That's why I mention it while the kids are out, okay? But... Uh, uh, yeah, ornery, that's, that's a good word. Luke chapter 2, we're going to look just at a phrase in verse 25, the consolation of Israel. Luke chapter 2 and verse 25. Let me tell you, to begin, let me tell you a made-up story that'll point to the story that's in the Bible. This, this one happens to be made up. When our children were little, uh, just just babies, they did these uh, wellness checks, of course. They want you to come in, and they want to weigh your baby and uh, check the vital signs, make sure the baby's eating. Occasionally, from time to time, trying to be a good, a good father, I'd go with my wife on these. Uh, I don't ever remember taking the baby by myself, but one of our babies would, would need one of these checks. So we'd go into the doctor, and it always surprised me, it still surprises me, that even though you have an appointment, you often have to wait a long time to see the doctor. Maybe your appointment's at 10 o'clock in the morning or 1 o'clock in the afternoon, 1.30, whatever it is, and you go in and you're, you're in fact, they even ask you to come early usually because there's paperwork to fill out and different things. They even ask you to come early and yet you still wait for the doctor. So imagine, this is an imaginary made-up story, but imagine here's a, here's a father and a mother, they've got a little newborn, they go to the pediatrician's office to have their baby checked, uh, just normal visit, and um, while they're there in the office waiting, an old man comes up in a pediatrician's office. An old man comes up and is so excited to see this baby. He says, this is the baby that I've been waiting for. Now, if that happened to me and to my wife, I think we would have said to the, to the office staff, who is this guy? We don't feel comfortable here. Then imagine on top of that, a second person comes in, a lady, she's even older than the fella is, and she says the same thing. Boy, we've been waiting for this child. I can't believe I get to see this with my own eyes. That's exactly what happened to Mary and to Joseph and to Jesus here in Luke chapter 2. There's two people, Simeon, we're not sure how old he was. We do know that he had been waiting a long time. And another lady, Anna, she's either 84 years old or over 100 years old. It depends on how you understand that the uh, four score and four years, whether it was after she was widowed or whether it was her age, but she's at least in her 80s. Both of these people have been waiting decades for the Messiah, for God's chosen one, for the one who's going to save Israel, save his people from their sins. That's what we mean when we talk about Advent. It's that period of waiting. Now, for Simeon, for Anna, they had been waiting for decades for Jesus to come the first time. Now, we aren't waiting for Jesus to come the first time. He's already come. We're waiting for Jesus to come the second time. The Bible says, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's what we're waiting for now. And some of you have been waiting for decades. And you may even have friends, uh, longtime friends or family members who are not believers who think it's sort of strange that you're still waiting for the second coming of Jesus. I'm sure there were people in Simeon and Anna's day who thought they were crazy also. You're still waiting for that? You still go to the temple every day expecting to meet some baby? How will you even know? Well, the Bible tells us it was the Holy Spirit who revealed it to Anna. 
and to Simeon, don't despair, don't become weary in well-doing if you've been waiting a long time, because I don't know when, but I do know that Jesus is coming a second time. And I want everyone that's here this morning to be ready for that second coming and not to wonder what it means. So we're going to talk about that when we talk about the consolation of Israel. Look with me at Luke chapter 2. We're going to pick it up in verse uh, 23, 22. And when the days of her purification, this would have been Mary's purification, according to the law of Moses were accomplished, they brought him, that is Jesus, to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male that openeth the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to that which is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And the same man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. That's the phrase we're going to look at in depth later, the consolation of Israel. Waiting for the consolation of Israel and the Holy Ghost was upon him and it was revealed unto him by the Holy Ghost that he should not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came by the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him after the custom of the law, then he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now lettest thou thy servant depart in peace according to thy word, for mine eyes have seen thy salvation. Notice those two words, thy salvation which thou hast prepared before the face of all people, a light to lighten the Gentiles and the glory of thy people Israel. And Joseph and his mother marveled at those things which were spoken of him. And Simeon blessed them and said unto Mary his mother, Behold, this child is set for the fall and rising again of many in Israel, and for a sign which shall be spoken against. Yea, a sword shall pierce through thine own soul also, that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed." Then verse 36, and there was one Anna, a prophetess, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was of great age and had lived with an husband seven years from her virginity. And she was a widow of about four score and four years, which departed not from the temple, but served God with fastings and prayers night and day. And she coming in that instant gave thanks likewise unto the Lord and spake of him to all them that looked for redemption in Israel, in Jerusalem, excuse me. And notice we talked about redemption last week, adoption, redemption. This week we're going to talk about Christmas consolations. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for these little ones. Again, it's a blessing. These children are a blessing to us, whether they're our children or our grandchildren or just our, our friends and our family members' children. We're so grateful that you have brought um, these children and their families to Elmira Baptist Church. And we ask that you bless each parent that is here today, each grandparent, and particularly the parents, that you'd give them wisdom and give them grace to raise their children in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. And we pray for this time of looking at these words, the consolation of Israel, that you would open our hearts to truth and open our eyes to truth. Holy Spirit, that you would meet with us. We claim your promise that where two or three are gathered in your name, there you are in the midst of them. We need your help, and we ask for it in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Simeon, Anna. You know, it would be nice if we lived in calmer, less interesting times. And sometimes we just assume that people in the Bible led very simple lives, and obviously they didn't have all the technology that we do, but there was a lot of problems in their lives too. Just in the lifetime of Anna, 
the lifetime of Simeon, there had been three invasions of Jerusalem that had left people dead. Literally tens of thousands of people had been massacred in these various invasions. And they had lived through that. They had lived through a time of oppression. We all know of Herod the Great, who's willing to kill his own family members to maintain his power base. When the wise men come and they say to Herod, they say, we've heard about this king of the Jews. Where is he born? Herod is so angered about this, so worried about his own grip on power, even though he knows nothing about this king, that he has all the babies in the area of Bethlehem under two years old. He has them all murdered. These are times of corruption, not just corruption on the political level. That's true. But what is Jesus going to find when he grows up and he's an adult? What is he going to find in the temple when he comes to visit? They've turned it into a giant marketplace, a giant bazaar where people sell animals for sacrifices, where people change money. And there's nothing wrong with just the the, the selling animals and, and the money changing. But the temple was set apart as a house of prayer. That wasn't the right place for it. But the religious leaders, the high, high priest and the, the priests that controlled the temple, they had seen it as a moneymaker for them. They could rent out space and make money. So it was a time of corruption. And despite the violence and the oppression and the corruption, Simeon and Anna kept a focus on what God was doing. They believed that there was going to be a Messiah. They believed that God was going to send a great Savior. We see that in, in uh, Simeon's statement, For mine eyes have seen thy salvation. He, here was Simeon. He was a, a devout man. He was a just man. That is, he worked hard to keep God's law. Now, he wasn't sinless. There's no one that is sinless. We, we, we know that the Bible says there is none righteous, no, not one. For all have sinned, the Bible says, and come short of the glory of God. But he worked really hard at it. He was patient. He had waited decades for God's promise to be true. We know he was led by the Spirit. Verse 27 tells us that he came to the temple uh, at just that time because the Spirit led him. We know, too, that he was contented. He wasn't worried and nervous and and in turmoil because here he was getting older and older and the Messiah hadn't come yet. He was contented. He was a man of great faith. He was a man of great faith because here he is. He's holding a baby. The baby hasn't done anything yet. There's no miracles yet. There's certainly not Jesus' death and resurrection yet. Jesus hasn't healed anyone. He hasn't raised Lazarus from the dead, none of that. And yet here, Simeon predicts that this is the salvation of Israel. This is the little one that God has promised. And it's a reminder to me and to you that regardless of our culture, regardless of the oppression and the violence and the corruption in our own society, regardless of all the turmoil that swirls around us, we can live contented, just that is righteous lives waiting patiently for God's next move. But that's not what I want to preach on this morning. I want to preach on this phrase, the consolation of Israel that's mentioned in verse 25. The word consolation is related in English to the word comfort. And, and you remember that Jesus promised that he would send a comforter, a paraclete who would be 
uh, our encourager. He'd walk alongside us. He would comfort us. That is the Holy Spirit. That's in the book of John. Well, that the word here, consolation, is a similar Greek word, someone who walks alongside, someone who comforts and encourages us. And it's a reminder that God the Father sent his son Jesus to be a comfort and to be an encouragement to us. The first way that Jesus comforts us, the first consolation that Jesus provides for us is because through Jesus Christ, his blood, his sacrifice, his death, and his resurrection, our sins can be forgiven. You remember we read in Isaiah chapter 40, Comfort ye, comfort ye my people, saith your God. Speak comfortably to Jerusalem and cry unto her that her warfare is accomplished, that her iniquity is pardoned. It's God who pardons our sin. And the, this Christmas time is a, is a beautiful reminder that our sins are forgiven. Jesus Christ died in our place so that we don't have to bear the weight and the guilt of our sin. We don't have to make up for our sin. No, salvation is in Jesus Christ. In fact, his name Jesus means God's salvation. In Matthew chapter 1, when the angel came to Joseph to tell him to go ahead and marry, Mary, that is, they were a spouse, they were betrothed, but to go ahead and go through with the marriage, the angel said to Joseph, and she, Mary, shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Simeon spoke of our salvation. He says, for mine eyes have seen thy salvation. And we looked at Anna who spoke of Jesus to all that looked for redemption in Israel. And that word redemption we looked at last week. So I want you to associate this Christmas and every Christmas in the future with that forgiveness that God offers us in Jesus Christ, that our sins are forgiven. Now, I remember I was talking about this, I think last week, and, and someone came to me this week. They said, Pastor, I'm, I'm not sure I heard you correctly. It sounded to me as if you said everyone's sins are forgiven. And I said to, to this lady who was very paying close attention, I said, now, you know, you're right. Not everybody's sins are forgiven. Now, Jesus died for all. I, I, I believe that. That's what the Bible teaches us. But that doesn't mean everyone's sins are forgiven. And the, the reason that not everyone's sins are forgiven is because not everyone comes to Jesus Christ for forgiveness. There's some people who just persist in their own way. And there's others who think that they're going to make up for their own sins. Jesus stands ready to forgive anyone. But we do have to come to him by faith, believing that we are sinners. I, I think that to me is the biggest obstacle I've seen as I talk to people, the biggest single obstacle is we don't like to admit that we are sinners and that we cannot save ourselves. We think of ourselves as pretty good people who've made some mistakes, but the good things we've done, certainly they outweigh our mistakes. But the truth is, the good things we do will never outweigh our mistakes. We have a God who created us. He is perfectly holy. He is completely without sin, and he must punish sin. But it's because he loves us that he sent his son to die in our place. Jesus Christ, who took on himself our sins when he died on the cross and rose again, showing his triumph over sin and over death. Jesus stands ready to forgive, but we must come to him. 
your sins can be forgiven by Jesus' death, by faith in Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. But that's up to you. So yes, everyone's sins can be forgiven. The sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross and his resurrection is sufficient to forgive all sin. But some of us perhaps are still struggling with our own sin today because we've never come to Jesus Christ believing it's his death, his burial, his resurrection that pays for our sins. But there's a second consolation about Christmas time and being forgiven. Once I'm forgiven, that frees me to forgive others who have offended me. Now think about this with me. I think one of the hardest things to do is to love someone who is difficult. The ornery people. Those are the hard ones to love. I mean, you take them a plate of cookies and they say, no, thank you. I don't eat cookies. Right? You take them some cake. They say, no, thank you. I don't eat cake. Well, what do you eat? Nothing you're going to make me. Those are the hard ones to love. They're ornery. Let me ask you this question. When did God love us? The Bible says when we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God, the father didn't look down and see a nice guy like me and say, boy, somebody better help that guy. He's a really nice guy and he's in trouble. No, he looked down at me and he saw a lost sinner stuck in the mud and the muck of sin, evil and wicked and ornery. And he said, if I don't intervene, he'll never be saved. And so when I'm forgiven by God, that gives me the grace to forgive others who have treated me unjustly. And frankly, the hardest person for me to forgive is the person who treats me unjustly, treats me mean, is harsh to me, and they will never admit they were wrong. Now, when they come to you and they say, you know, I blew it, I said some nasty, mean things to you, and would you forgive me? Boy, my heart just goes out to that person, I forgive you. It's the one who doesn't want to admit they're wrong. The one who comes to you and says, you know what, you offended me. I I offended you. Let me tell you what you've done to me. And then you want to just list it off. Those are the people that are hard to forgive. But that's exactly what God did at Christmas time. He sent his son, his precious, his perfect son to a rebellious people to show his great love for us. As I mentioned before, the Bible says God commends. He shows his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So if you're a Christian, now God calls you to forgive others. Not just the ones that are easy to forgive. Not just the ones that have come to you and said, hey, I I blew it, forgive me. Those are the ones that I think all of us would admit our hearts go out to them. Yes, I can forgive you. How about the ones you're still waiting for them to admit that they're wrong? You can forgive them too. Colossians 3.13 We're commanded, those of us who are God's children, we're commanded for bearing one another. That means to put up with each other and forgiving one another. If any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. We struggle with loving the unlovely and forgiving those who have treated us unjustly and won't admit we're wrong. We struggle with that. Christmas time can be a time where you'll accept God's grace and forgive that person that you've maybe never forgiven. That's what Christmas can be.
for us. You say, yeah, but they're not changing. Think about this with me. I got in my car yesterday morning, Saturday morning. Yeah, Saturday morning, fairly early. I had some errands to run. I got in my car and, and I noticed it was really, really cold. And Patty and I were talking about this. Just about the time you get to your location is when your car warms up. So the whole time you're driving, you're thinking, boy, can't this car get warm any faster? I got to my location. I parked my car in the sun. About four or five hours later, I returned to my car. Guess what? Now it's too hot. And I thought to myself, now it's too hot. Why can't this car just be the temperature I want it to be? As, as, as developed nation people. We just have these unreasonable expectations of life. And you know what? We treat people like that. Why can't they just be the way I want them to be? Let me encourage you to be the thermostat. You to be the person God wants you to be. The same as today and and tomorrow and in the future as God wants you to be. Don't worry about what the other person does. Are they cold towards you? Are they hot? Are they don't want it? You be the person God wants you you to be. You be the thermostat in the relationship, whether they're cold or whether they're hot. You say, that's, that's hard. It's hard to live it out, especially when it's a person that we have to deal with regularly. If it's a spouse or it's a child, boy, that can be hard to forgive if they're not willing to admit they're wrong. But those are just the people God's called us to forgive. It could be a parent Maybe you only see your parents at Christmas time, or maybe you've made a point not to see your parents at Christmas time because, frankly, you're holding a, gut, a grudge against that parent. I'm going to encourage you this Christmas if you're a child of God, forgive that parent. You have all the grace you need to forgive. Maybe it's a sibling, maybe it's a brother or a sister. Proverbs tells us that a brother offended is harder to be won than a strong city. Sometimes we've offended someone. Uh, excuse me, someone has offended us. And we're, we're just determined. We're going to hold on to that grudge. Yeah, maybe we'll say hi. Maybe we'll say Merry Christmas. But in our hearts, there's a bitterness and an unforgiveness toward that person. This Christmas, if you're a child of God, let me encourage you, God's grace is sufficient. You can forgive. Maybe it's a brother or a sister in Christ right here in this room. Something they said, something they did. Maybe it was even unintentional. I don't know. Or maybe you feel like they just dislike you. Now, I don't know of anyone here that dislikes anyone else. But you know what? In our heads, we get things stuck in our heads that somebody doesn't like me. And then we we look for all the things that they do that matches up with they don't like me. They brought us cookies when we wanted cake. They brought me cake when I wanted cookies. If you're a child of God, you've been forgiven. And God offers you all the grace you need to forgive someone else. You say, what is forgiveness and and specifically me forgiving others? What does that have to do with Christmas? Because the whole point of Christmas is God sending his son for rebellious, ornery people like you, like me, so he could forgive us. And if we're God's children, now he calls us to forgive others. If you're not a child of God, you're going to find forgiving others who have offended you very difficult because you lack God's grace. But anyone, again, anyone can be a child of God. You can leave today knowing your sins are forgiven and that you're a child of God. And then not only will you have grace to forgive people who offend you, but there's a second consolation. 
that you will have as a Christian, and that's the consolation that God is walking beside you. Remember, this word consolation means encouragement, means comfort, because somebody comes and walks beside us. You ever been on a long hike? Uh, one, uh, one time I decided I was going to do a 10-mile hike with my family. Wisely, I chose to do one of those hikes that had a cutoff. So after about two miles, some of us could cut off and go back to the car. So we walked about two miles when I said to my family, and this was when my kids were smaller, I said to my family, how many of you want to go the rest of the way with me and how many of you want to return to the car? That was the wrong question. But two of them said, Dad, we're going to go with you. And boy, what an encouragement that was to me to have them walk alongside me. The truth is, when you become a Christian, the Holy Spirit is with you whether you like it or not. He's right there beside you. And he comforts and he encourages us. Now, I know what some Christians are going to say. They're going to say, preacher, I, I tell you what, I don't feel like God's walking beside me. That may be true that you don't feel that way. It seems like he's not walking beside you. One possibility is that there's some unconfessed sin in your life. And when we refuse to confess our sin to God, the fellowship with God is broken. Not the relationship. We're still God's child. Nobody can take away from us that forgiveness, that eternal life. It wouldn't be eternal life if you could take it away. It would be temporary. But that fellowship is broken, and it doesn't feel like God's walking beside us. Very simple solution, and that is simply confess your sin. Say, God, you know you're right. I'm wrong. Here's, here's where I have gone my own way. Forgive me. And the Bible says if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But there's another reason why it may seem to you like God's not walking beside you. Amos suggests it this way. Amos 3.3, he asked the question, can two walk together except they be agreed? Remember, we get to that fork in the road on my 10-mile hike, and some of the family says, hey, we want to go back to the car. Okay, great, you, you do that. We weren't walking together anymore. They wanted to go one direction, I wanted to go another. Now, I'll admit that they were right, and I was wrong. By the time I got done with that 10-mile hike, I wished I'd made that cut off too. But we had to be agreed if we were going to walk together. And frankly, as Christians, even though God walks beside us, even though the Holy Spirit, He never leaves us, He never forsakes us, if I just want my own way in life, it often seems like God is not there. I just insist, you know, God, I don't care what you want. I'm not interested in, in, in what you're, you're trying to do. I, I know what I want. Here's my goal. And if that's not God's goal, I'm walking one direction that God wants me to walk when God wants me to walk a different direction. And I'm not saying that God leaves us because God never leaves us. He never forsakes us. But it will definitely seem like you're not walking together. Go back to that forgiveness. There's been times in my life where God says to me, you've got to forgive so-and-so. And I say, God, I'm not going to forgive so-and-so. You don't understand what they've done to me. And during that whole time, days it has been, I, I have to admit to my own shame, during that time of arguing with God over whether I was going to forgive that person or not, I wasn't walking with God. He had a direction for me, and I was trying to go a different direction. And it wasn't until I agreed with God and I said, you're right. I've, I can't forgive that person on my own. Will you help me? Boy, suddenly God's grace is sufficient. It was always sufficient. The problem was in my own heart. Remember the story of a man speaking about forgiveness who'd had a father who was uh, alcoholic and abusive. And so growing up in an alcoholic and abusive uh, home, he, he just hated his father. 
He became a Christian as an adult, and yet he hung on to that grudge. His father was not a, a nice man. Even uh, when he grew up to be an adult, his father would treat him harshly whenever he was around. So he just decided he wasn't going to spend any time with his father. But as he read God's word and he came to those words, forbearing one another, forgiving one another, he was convicted that regardless of how his father treated him, he had to forgive his father. So he made a point. He was living in one part of the country. He made a point to travel several states over to find his father, to say to his father, I forgive you. Now his father hadn't asked for forgiveness, but to say, I forgive you. And you know what he said when he finally met with his father, said, I forgive you. He had such freedom. His father didn't change. His father wasn't a Christian at that time, but he had freedom because he no longer held that grudge. He was now walking with God, the same path that God wanted him to walk on. That was the path he was walking on. But there's a third reason why sometimes God's comfort and his encouragement just doesn't seem enough, even though we're children of God. And that's because, frankly, sometimes we just resist God's consolations, God's comfort. In the Bible, one of a friend asks another friend, he says, are the consolations of God small with you? God's trying to comfort you, but you just don't seem to want any comfort is the point. I think of it, again, having had four children, I think of it when your children get so tired, they don't want to sleep. You ever had them get so tired, you they're, they're small enough, you put them in a crib, and nope, they don't want to go to sleep. They just sit there and they cry and they cry. What do they need? They need to just go to sleep. You've put them in a comfortable spot. They're warm. You're right there. They're safe. But they're, they refuse to go to sleep. And then when they get older and they can get out of bed, you try to put them down and, listen, you need a nap or it's nighttime. You need to go to sleep right now. Nope, they got to get up. They got to wander around. They need a drink. They need this. No, what they need is they just need to go to sleep, but they res- they, they're so tired, they resist going to sleep. Now take that analogy and think about it in your life or my life. God's grace is sufficient for any problem we might have. God's grace and comfort is always more than enough for what I need. But sometimes, frankly, I just don't want it. I want to be tormented and I want to be in turmoil. I want people to know how badly I have it. And God wants to comfort me. So if you are not a child of God this morning, let me start there. Let me ask you to consider. If your sins are not forgiven, you don't know that you have eternal life. God's message to you today is you can be forgiven. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to come back a certain number of times. We're not asking anything of you. God's not asking anything of you. The Bible says, for by grace are ye saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. You can know your sins are forgiven and that you have eternal life and you can be a child of God. If you are a child of God, have you forgiven that person that God has laid on your heart to forgive? The one who treated you unjustly, maybe they're still treating you unjustly. Maybe they're still treating you unfairly. Have you forgiven that person? And if you're going through a time of turmoil and stress in your life, are you receiving God's comfort and consolation? Are you letting him minister and pour his grace into your soul? Or are you resisting? Because as long as you resist, God can't comfort you. Not because he can't, he's unable to, but because you refuse to be comforted. 
Father, thank you for this uh, opportunity to look at the consolation of Israel, Jesus Christ, whose death, burial, and resurrection makes it possible for any of us to have forgiveness, makes it possible for any of us to forgive others who have offended us, and makes it possible for us to walk through life with the comfort and the consolation of God, strong in our hearts, filling our souls, even in times of great turmoil. Lord, you know the ones that have come this morning, your children, in turmoil, hurting because of the circumstances of life. And I, I again, ask that you'd pour out your balm of comfort and calm into their hearts and into their lives, that they would sense your presence is with them, that you never leave us, you never forsake us, but may they sense that you're walking right alongside them, the consolation of Israel, the comforter. For anyone this morning who is not a Christian, my, my prayer is that they would not leave without asking how they can know that their sins are forgiven and that they have eternal life. And for these little children that were part of our pageant today, Lord, so exciting to see the potential that is here. We ask for these children as well to come to that saving faith in Jesus Christ, knowing that their sins are forgiven, that Jesus paid it all. Many of them already have come to that. I pray that they would grow in faith and in knowledge of their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And I ask these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.